I am really excited about Ecclesiastes. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and open it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you don't have one, that's fine. The verses will be on the screens behind us. And if you don't have a Bible at all, we would love to give you one as a gift today. We've got some on the back desk at our Connect desk, and they're a gift for you to take home if you don't have one. So please feel free to do that. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we're going to look at the first uh, 11 verses this morning of that, uh, of that book. We're going to spend the next eight weeks delving into this crazy, crazy book. So I'm going to read and pray, and then we're going to get stuck into it. So please pray with me. Gracious Father, we thank you that you're the God who speaks to us, and we thank you that you address our circumstances even when they're difficult and hard. And we thank you that your scriptures speak to our lives in such a way that it can read our assumptions and our contradictions and the problems that we experience in living in this world. So as we walk through this journey of life through the eyes of the preacher, Father, please help us to be real with ourselves. Help us to be real about our lives and our work and our leisure and our family and the things that we do. And Father, I pray that you would convict us. Help us to find the right place to hang significance, purpose and meaning. And we pray ultimately, Father, that you would open our eyes to see that Jesus is the only place we can do that. We ask it in his strong name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting at verse 1. And it says this, The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has been already in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Damien Hirst is uh, probably one of the world's most wealthy artists, uh, if not the world, certainly in the UK. And uh, he has created a very famous artwork called For the Love of God. There's a picture of it on the screen now for you to see. It's a human skull that has been cast, a, a replica, a platinum replica of a human skull. And into that skull has been embedded 8,601 VVS to flawless diamonds. Hurst says of this artwork that his intention is to cause us to think about the transient nature of life. He says that we don't like death, and so we seek to pretty it up, decorate it, distract ourselves from the reality of it. I don't know about you, but as I first saw that artwork, when Sally Sally actually sent it to me as an example, when I first saw that, And I don't know what it does to you as you look at that. What do you think? But I first saw it and thought, what a waste. What a waste to put 8,601 diamonds on a skull, on something that is so 
temporal and something that is dying and decaying. And then I thought to myself, well, hang on a second. It seems to me that I do that every day. I attach meaning and significance and purpose and put value onto things that in the end don't last. They're transient. They're a mist. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes is seeking to do the very same thing that Damien Hirst does in his artwork. He wants you to see that life is transient, that death is a reality, and that we so often place value and purpose and significance on things that are a mist. A vapor. They just don't last. Vanitas. Vanitas, vanitatum, omnia vanitas. It's not a Harry Potter spell. It's the opening four words from the Latin Vulgate, that translation of the Bible that Sally mentioned earlier that inspired this genre of artwork called vanitas. Our English translation is vanity, and the word means literally breath or mist or vapor. We're about to embark on the next seven or eight weeks on a journey through life from the vantage point of the preacher. And the preacher here is most likely King Solomon. Have a look at what it says there in verse 1. The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. There is no other king in the history of Israel that meets the description of the king that we find in the pages of Ecclesiastes. And if it's not written by Solomon, it's certainly written about his life and his world because there is no one else in all of Israel's history who is as wealthy, significant, influential, and powerful as King Solomon was. This is not a work written by a guy who had a theory about being rich and powerful. Right? This is a guy who had everything you could possibly ever imagine to have had and he writes his version of life. In fact, 1 Kings 10 tells us that Solomon was so rich that in one financial year, just one year, he amassed $113 million worth of gold. And that was just gold, not all of his other business ventures. Like, this guy is filthy, rich, and powerful, and he writes his take on life. The genre of this book is called wisdom literature. There's a number of genres throughout the Bible. We've got poetry in the Psalms. We've got historical narrative in books like Judges and Joshua and the Gospels. We've got apocalyptic literature like Daniel and Revelation full of dreams and visions and symbols. And, and then we come to a genre like Ecclesiastes. It's called wisdom literature. Proverbs, Song of Songs all fit into this category. And really wisdom literature is not so much about declaring promises but principles. And Solomon shares his wisdom, the wisdom that he has learnt on living life. And he's got a purpose as he writes this work. He's got a purpose. And his purpose is that he wants you to think. Actually, more than think, he wants you to, he wants you to feel. The purpose of Ecclesiastes really is to disrupt your soul. It's going to force you to ask the deep questions of life. The preacher in Ecclesiastes really views life from the perspective of life with the Bible closed, life without God in the picture front and center. I don't know if you've heard of the, the challenge, the atheist challenge. It's a, a week-long challenge where you adopt the framework of an atheist and it's supposed to free you from the bondage of slavery of religion. And really, this, this perspective of the preacher is like the atheist challenge. Now, he's not an atheist himself. He still believes in God, he still worships God, and we get glimpses of how we can enjoy life through God through the book of Ecclesiastes. But what he's trying to take us on is a 
the logical conclusion of life. When you seek to attach meaning, significance and purpose to things that cannot hold them. Life without God at the center of the picture. Ecclesiastes makes us hungry for meaning. It taps into that existential angst that I think everyone feels. No matter what worldview you come from, whether you're a believer, whether you're an unbeliever, whether you're an atheist, agnostic, I think we all experience that sense of, what is my purpose? Am I achieving anything here in this life? Am I going anywhere? And so our hope is that this series would disrupt your soul, would shake you up a bit and cause you to think and feel, make you hungry, whether you believe or not. If you're a believer here this morning, our hope is that this series would help you see that you too quickly and too often attach your life's purpose and significance to things that don't last. And our hope is that we would draw you back to Jesus. If you're not a believer here this morning, you don't believe in Jesus, you don't worship him, then our hope is that you would see through this series that you attach too much of your significance and purpose in things that don't last and that you would come to Jesus for the first time. That's our hope. Ecclesiastes will disrupt your soul. You know, one of the commentators says of Ecclesiastes, he says, think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible written on a Monday morning. And what I think he means by that is Ecclesiastes includes all of the dreariness and mundaneness of Monday mornings. It's honest, it's real, it's raw about our life. And it doesn't pull punches. It forces us to think, it forces us to reevaluate and engage. And so you're probably sitting here thinking, wow, thank you for bringing me to church to make me feel depressed about my life. But you weren't expecting to come to church and hear that. Your life is a vapor, it's a mist, it means nothing. Hang in there. This isn't just a journey to make you feel depressed. In fact, I don't think Ecclesiastes was written for the purpose to make you feel depressed. I think what it does is it causes us to evaluate, make us hungry and search for the truth of the very things that we're looking for in all the wrong places. The preacher's outlook on life is vanity. Verse 2, have a look. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That phrase is kind of like the bookends of the book of Ecclesiastes. At the very beginning, at the very end, that phrase pops up in exactly word for word at the beginning, at the end. That's his estimation of life. That's his thesis on life. All is vanity. But what does he mean when he says all is vanity? I think the problem we have with this word is that we don't have one English word in and of itself that can capture all of the nuances that go into the original Hebrew word vanity. The literal translation, as I've already mentioned, is breath or vapor or mist. And often the writer of Ecclesiastes will use this word in different ways. Sometimes he will use it to mean absurd. Sometimes he will use it to mean transient and ephemeral. Sometimes he will use it to mean meaningless and empty. But his purpose in what he does and the whole of the book is his attempt to show you that his thesis, his take on life is right. That if you live life, with a closed Bible, with a, without a view of eternity, without God in the picture, seeking to place your purpose and meaning in things that won't last, in the end, it is vanity. It's empty. It's fleeting. And that journey starts with him with a soul-searching 
question. Have a look at verse 3. He says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's very good at asking probing questions of us, the reader. And this is the question he asks that begins him on this journey of exploring life. What do we gain? It's an accounting word. It's kind of like what is left in the profit column. After all of this work and labor, what is the profit? What is the surplus? Am I going anywhere? Do I have any traction in life? What is the gain? What does it gain? What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That phrase there under sun pops up 28 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's another way of saying life on earth. Life as if you lived it with what you see is what you get. What does a person gain with all their toil under the sun? As the preacher surveys nature, as he surveys his own personal experience, as he surveys history, his answer is a depressing nothing. Nothing. His take on life is it's a treadmill. It goes round and 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 round. That's his take on life. He sees this pattern in nature firstly. Have a look at verse 4. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. We enter the stage We perform a short performance and then we exit the stage as quickly as we started. And then the cycle continues. The builders, the boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, generation, whatever comes after Gen Alpha, all of them will come and all of them will go. We're just an endless cycle of breeding mammals and the purpose seems to be survival. They come, they go. We go from the the birthing ward to the funeral parlor and then the journey begins again. James 4.14 says, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. He sees the same pattern in the sea, the wind and the sun. Have a look at verse 5. He says, The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and around to the north and around and around goes the wind. On its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. It just goes round. The sun comes up, the sun comes down Monday. The sun comes up, the sun comes down Tuesday. The sun comes up, the sun comes down Wednesday. And around And around it goes, the earth orbits the sun and it just keeps going and going and going and going. The wind follows the same pattern, blowing in this direction, blowing that direction, never really seeming to achieve anything with all of that effort. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It doesn't seem to achieve anything. All of the streams flow into the sea, but it's not full. Now, he probably doesn't have the the water cycle table in mind there. He's probably not that scientifically advanced at this stage in history. But he has a very real picture of this because the Jordan River flows into the landlocked Dead Sea. It has no outlet. And yet the River Jordan flows and flows and flows and flows and the Dead Sea is not full. It never overflows. As he looks around nature, all he sees is this endless, fruitless cycle of activity that doesn't seem to achieve anything. 
what he sees in nature, he also perceives in his own personal experience. Have a look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Everything is tiresome. Nature just keeps on going. It's, it's as if the sun, the moon, and the waves are aboard. That, that word there in verse 5 that speaks of the sun hastening to the place where it returns, you could translate that it pants. It drags its feet back to the next sunrise and around it goes again. It's wearisome. It's tiring. All work. Labor, 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 and no gain. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. Of all of the things that hit the back of your retina, it is still hungry for more. I mean, Instagram is the classic example of that, isn't it? We are addicted to scrolling and double-tapping people's moments caught in life with no filter and a thousand hashtags. And we scroll and double-tap and we scroll and double-tap and we scroll and double-tap. We get to the bottom and we go back to the top hoping that a new photo has been loaded. And then we go to Facebook and we look at all of the same photos again and the eye is still hungry for more. The ear does the same thing. His experience of life is that it just goes round and round and round and round. He sees the same thing in history. What he sees in nature, what he experiences in life, he sees in history as well. Have a look at verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in ages before us. In 1997, the year I finished high school, the Propeller Heads released a song called History Repeating. I don't know if anyone here is old enough to remember that song. It was cool in 97. It's probably not cool anymore. Shirley Bassey was the singer. And the, the, the chorus of it went, it's all just a little bit of history repeating. It's all just a little bit. Her take on life, as she looked at life, it's all just a little bit of history repeating. The very famous North American baseballer, Yogi Berra, I don't know if he was any good at baseball, but he's very famous for his little pithy proverbs. And one of his very, very clever proverbs is this. It's deja vu all over again. Clever, isn't it? It's deja vu all over again. As the preacher looks at life, that's what he sees. History repeating itself. Now you might think, well, hang on a second. We live in a technological era, unlike Solomon, unlike these ancient people. Surely technology is new. Well, let's take the new iPhone, for example. Its marketing tagline is what? The only thing that's changed is everything. Really, Apple? Really? Like, I'm pretty sure the iPhone still makes calls, sends texts, tells me the time, takes photos, has all my social media. Like, the first iPhone did that. So really, nothing's changed. So much of technological advancement is just marketing spin. But to be fair, there is new technology that improves our lives, that helps us be more efficient, that helps us do things in a better way. And even those things are simply tools at doing the things that we've been doing for millennium, at communicating, at building, at learning, at making things efficient. We've been doing that forever. And technology is just a new tool and a new way of doing the same thing over and over again. The reality is we just do it faster than we did before. There is nothing new. What about fashion? Classic example. 
right? You, I mean, the colours that you have in your wardrobe at the moment, ladies, they'll be cool again in 30 years, so hang on to them, right? I'm telling you, it's the truth. You take, for example, um, the Ray-Bans. How many of you have got a pair of those classic Ray-Ban wayfarers, right? Probably half of the people in this room have got a pair of those Ray-Bans. Have a guess when they were first produced. Multi-choice, right? Late 2000s, 1980s, 1950s. When were they produced? 1956. 1956? They were cool in 56. And then they got cool again in the 80s when the Blues Brothers wore them. And then they got cool again in the late 2000s. And I'm telling you, you hold on to them and you'll be cool again in 30 years' time. Because every 30 years, the cycle continues. And that's fashion. It just keeps going round and round and round. What was cool is not cool anymore. And then it comes back again. There is nothing new. Nothing new. It's all just a little bit of history repeating. And nothing will be remembered. Verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. You know, the reason that things seem new and novel is that we forget. We forget that Ray-Bans were cool in the 80s. And the truth is the generation to come will forget. They'll forget everything that was before and we will be forgotten too. I wonder how many of you here know all four names of your great-grandparents on both sides of your family. Anyone? Anyone know all four names? One person. All four names, two people. All four names of your great-great-grandparents. Two generations and no one will remember you anymore. Isn't that depressing? All of life we're hoping to be remembered and then in two generations no one will remember you. Honestly, it's not even that long. I kid you not, if I were to leave this church, and I'm not planning to, so don't read into that. If I were to leave this church, in 12 months, people would say, Matt who? Matt who? No one will remember you. There is nothing new. There is no remembrance. Life is this treadmill that just goes round and round and round and round and round. You know, if you're a worker, my guess is you feel this acutely. Because your alarm's going to go off tomorrow morning at 6.30 a.m. You're going to get up, have a shower, eat breakfast, get changed. 7.15 train into the city. Same cafe, same coffee order. 8.30 into the office, work. 12.30 lunch, work. 5.30 knock off. 5.37 train home. Get home, sit down, watch some TV, eat dinner, go to bed. 6.30 alarm, right? And the cycle's going to continue. Or if you're a mum, my guess is this is your experience. You don't have an alarm. You've just got a live human being that wakes you up whenever they feel like it. And it's often before 6.30 and you wake up and you change a nappy and you have a feed and then you play and then you have morning tea and then you have a nap and then you change a nappy and then you do some exploring and then you have lunch and then you change another nappy and then you have another sleep and then you more exploring and then it's crazy hour just before dinner and then there's dinner and bath and story and bed and the cycle repeats itself again. Or maybe you're a student and you think, ha, my life is way more random than that. I've got no structure. I wake up whenever I want. It's all lies. You've got a treadmill, and it goes like this. Shoot, lecture, assignment. Shoot, lecture, assignment. Shoot, lecture, exams. Holidays. Work, work, holiday. Shoot, lecture, assignment. Shoot, lecture, assignment. And right? And you think, well, at least I get to the end of it, and I complete it. Yeah, and then you just hop off that treadmill and get on the one called work. 
Life is like a treadmill. It goes round and round and round and round, and it can end up feeling purposeless. I don't know about you, if you got all philosophical about household chores as a kid. I certainly did. My mom would come to me and say, you need to make your bed. I'd be like, what's the point? What is the point of making my bed if I'm just going to get in it and mess it up again and then have to make it and just repeat the cycle over and over? What's the point? What do I gain from that? That's the question the preacher's asking. Life is like a treadmill. What is the gain? You know, our lives are closer to the reality of that movie Groundhog Day than we really care to admit. It's true. It is. That cycle of nature that we see is a mirror of our experience of life. And we run on this treadmill. We run and we run and we run and we don't go anywhere. And it leaves us bored. And it leaves us wondering what the purpose of our life is. I hate to tell you this, but your life is about as predictable as a romantic comedy. It just is. And even when you try and break the mundane predictability and do something radical like backpack through Asia, you just did something really predictable that thousands of other people have done before you. What is the point of your life? What is it? Like, seriously. Can you just be honest with yourself for a second? Just stop and think. From all my effort, all my study, all my work, all my parenting, all of my, what is the point of it all? Are you really going anywhere? That's the question that this book forces us to stop and to ask. Ecclesiastes really deconstructs our worldview and it causes us to think about all the contradictions and assumptions and problems with our lives. And the problem we have is this. As we go through life, we expect gain. We expect progress from all of the things that we do. But the reality is that that expectation is so far removed from our world and our universe and our life experience because you pan back far enough and the cycle continues and nothing you do lasts and you won't be remembered. Life is meaningless because one day you will die and leave everything that you've worked for to someone else. And who knows what they're going to do with it. That's the story that he tells in coming chapters. How depressing. How depressing. But to be honest with you, those in our world who are true, pure atheists agree with that assumption of life. There's no point. There's no point at all. You're just a random bunch of molecules Existing and then not existing, done. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like I need some good news to break into that depressing cycle of life. You know, the reason we experience that existential angst is because God made it that way. The reason we experience life like that is because God has subjected this world to vanity Our first parents, Adam and Eve, decided that God was holding out on them and that true life, true enlightenment, true freedom was found outside of God's purposes for them and they believed the lie of the accuser and they ate the fruit. And that experience that we 
so long for of significance and purpose and meaning, that's an experience of the Garden of Eden. And after that point of sin, after sin entered the picture, God has subjected this world to frustration. Romans 8.19 says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but by him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The only time in the New Testament where that word vanity appears is here in Romans 8. And Paul says that God has subjected this world. He has laid vanity on our experience, on this creation itself, on the world. Friends, we will never really experience the purpose in life that we so desire outside of God's purposes for us, outside of relationship, connection to God. Now, Ecclesiastes is honest. It recognizes that there is a quota of enjoyment in life under the sun, life as you see it. But ultimately, deep, spiritual, real, ultimate meaning and significance is fleeting if you close your Bible and push God to the side. That's why that verse says there that creation is subjected to vanity in hope. You see that? In hope. Go back to verse 21 with me again. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That God is doing a work to restore what sin destroyed. And that experience that we have of being reconciled and restored and redeemed is the same experience that this world, this creation itself will experience. And it longs for it, groaning for that time to come. That experience that we so desperately long for and hope for is an experience that Jesus came to bring. In John 10 verse 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. That abundant life that Jesus comes to bring is life now with purpose and significance and life forevermore with purpose and significance. You see, Jesus breaks into the mundane, breaks into the cycle from eternity, no start, no beginning, and he breaks in and he destroys that vanity that we feel and experience. Jesus removes that sense of vanity because he brings eternal life. You see, if life is just about going round and round and round and in the end you don't cease to exist, what's the point? What is the point of it all if you're not going anywhere? And Jesus comes and he tells us of eternity, of a perfect experience of life in the new heavens and the new earth forevermore. And then all of a sudden, all of that cycle now has significance and meaning and purpose. Jesus removes that sense of vanity because I now live life in connection with my creator. You see, every single person is created to love and to be loved because we've been created in the image and likeness of a God who is love, a relational God. And so if we try and exclude that, then relationships and love is marred and broken and bent. But Jesus comes and reconnects us with our Creator. And we now 
experience life the way we were originally intended it to be in relationship with God. Jesus comes and he removes that sense of vanity by allowing me to enjoy the blessings of this creation. Because I'm no longer looking to these things for meaning and purpose and significance because they're things that will pass and they're fleeting. But when I attach my meaning and value and identity and significance to Jesus who is eternal, then all of a sudden I'm free to enjoy those things as good gifts from God and not use them. Because this is what happens. When we take the things of this world and we use them, we end up worshipping them and they end up crushing us. We're going to trace that journey out through the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes The good things of God, we take, we use them, we abuse them, we worship them, and they end up crushing us, leaving us dissatisfied and empty. And Jesus frees us to just enjoy them for what they are, to enjoy this life as a blessing from God. So friends, stop trying to find your your identity, your purpose in things that won't last, that are fleeting, that are disappearing that are like smoke, a mist. Maybe today you've realized that you've been searching and you've come up empty. Maybe that question really resonates with you. What is the gain? What is the point? Maybe today you realize that you have been putting value on things that are fleeting and not lasting. You might even worship Jesus and you've been doing that. The point of Ecclesiastes is to help you see that so that you wouldn't do that. It's to help you see that I keep trying to hang meaning on all these things that are fleeting and it makes us hungry for the hope that Jesus ultimately brings in the gospel. Only in Christ will your soul's thirst ultimately be quenched. Only in Christ. Ecclesiastes makes us hungry for that good news. And the good news is that Jesus comes to bring life and life abundantly. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you don't worship Jesus, then can I plead with you to journey with us over the next seven weeks? Look, even if you're not, even if you call Anchor Home, just try and be here for seven weeks in a row. That'd be great. But journey with us for seven weeks And our hope is that as you explore life with us, you will see that in the end, we desperately need Jesus. We need him to break into the mundane and give us purpose, significance, and meaning. Friends, I'm going to pray. We're going to worship the God who does exactly that. But before we do that, I just want to read you a verse from John 6. Jesus... um, He calls the crowd out because they've come to him out of an interest for food that satisfies their stomach. He's fed 5,000 people and they're up for a free meal. And Jesus says to them, look, don't pursue food that's going to satisfy you for a moment. Pursue food that's going to satisfy you for eternity, forever. And then in John 6, verse 35, Jesus says this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In a moment, friends, we're going to respond and worship this great God. And to my right and left are two stations. On them are bread and grape juice. And we invite you to come and take the bread and dip it into the grape juice and eat it, remembering that Jesus is the one. That very meal is the only thing 
They will satisfy your soul. So let's worship that Jesus now. Let me pray. Father God, we, we thank you for an honest, real picture of our lives. We thank you, God, that you shine the mirror of the cyclic nature of life, that you might make us hungry for more. And we thank you, Jesus, that you come and that you bring life and that you bring life abundantly. Lord, I pray that you would reveal in our hearts the ways that we are seeking for purpose and significance and meaning in things that just will not last. Pray right now, Father, for those in this room who are really feeling a deep sense of what is the point. Reveal to all of us, Father, that only in Christ will our souls find the answer to that longing, find their satisfaction, have that thirst quenched. Lord, we worship you because of what you have done in breaking into the mundane of this world and giving us a sense of purpose and significance and meaning. And for that, we worship you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen.